I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining the conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds. For episode 19, we read The Conservative Soul by Andrew Sullivan from 2006. Andrew Michael Sullivan was born in 1963 in South Godstone, Surrey, England, to a Roman Catholic family of Irish descent. He was brought up in the nearby town of East Grinstead, West Sussex. He grew up in a working-class home where neither of his parents attended college. Growing up in Britain in the 1970s and 1980s, he characterized himself as a teenage Thatcherite, as he admired conservative British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. He apparently also wore a Reagan 1980 campaign button on his chest in high school. He graduated with first-class honors from Magdalen College, Oxford, in modern history and languages. In his second year, he was elected president of the Oxford Union. In 1984, he moved to the United States to study at Harvard University, where he earned a Master of Public Administration from the John F. Kennedy School of Government, followed by a Ph.D. in government. His dissertation focused on the conservative British philosopher Michael Oakeshott. In 1986, Sullivan began his career with the New Republic magazine, serving as its editor from 1991 to 1996. He also wrote for the New York Times magazine. But he's best known as the author and editor of his pioneering blog, The Dish, which focused on political issues. The Dish ran throughout the 2000s and ended in 2015. At its peak, The Dish boasted tens of millions of site visits per year. Sullivan continues to speak at universities, colleges, and civic organizations in the United States, He's been a guest on national news and political commentary television shows in the United States and Europe. Sullivan is openly gay and a practicing Catholic. He resides in Washington, D.C. with his husband, Aaron Tone, and he's the author of six books. Listeners will see this is probably one of the more different books we've read. So the, con- the contention he starts with is that the conservatism that, that he is familiar with, that he admired under Ratcher, uh, Reagan and Thatcher, has changed by the time he's written this book in 2006. And he divides conservatives into fundamentalists who rely on absolute ideas and conservatives who don't, who you can guess by the two labels, which group he finds himself in. He he calls himself a, a conservative. And a lot of the book is, you know, dissecting where the divide came from and what it means to be a fundamentalist versus a conservative. And uh, as Corey said in the introduction, he is a practicing Catholic. So fundamentalist in this sense doesn't necessarily mean that you can't be religious in politics, but it also kind of does mean that because he, he doesn't really like this idea of this external source of values, which has been a consistent theme through, I think just about everybody else we've listened to or, or read rather. And, sort of, especially the, the biblical ideas that pervaded a lot of modern American conservatism, he finds uh, just really abhorrent, it, which is admittedly a strange take for someone who is himself uh, a professed Christian. Well, where he starts with was uh, the, the first line in chapter one I thought was good. It was, all conservatism begins with loss. 
if we never knew loss, we would never feel the need to conserve, which is the essence of any conservatism. He discusses Burke and the French Revolution as, you know, Burke conservatism as a reaction of everything that was being lost uh, from the old order in the revolt in France. And I think that's kind of right because, and I think it's part of what makes us, makes it hard for us to define conservatism is that it starts with something that's already there. Tradition, often biblical tradition, but often just the way things go in whatever place you're from, you know, and, and we've, we've often gone back to England because that is our intellectual heritage in America. So what Burke was writing about is, is in some ways what Sullivan is writing about. So this is the way things have gone in England. My conservatism, I think they would both say, is a reaction to these utopian schemes that are going on around the world, in France, and wherever else. And that sort of traditionalist conservatism appeals to Sullivan. I get this sense from Sullivan that conservatism for him is more a disposition than a set of, say, ideological beliefs. He, he obviously hates ideology and spends much of the book pushing back against strong religious views, which he calls fundamentalism and strong political views, you know, which he basically attributes to the Bush administration. But it's interesting to me that when he's talking about Burke in the first chapter, that he does mention Burke's traditionalism, but I feel like he focuses more on Burke's sort of, because uh, Burke's relativism, he, because, you know, Burke had that sort of, view of the, of the world where, you know, we just sort of wrapped up in the, the evolving history of the world and, and we don't have a lot of choice so much as we just sort of stand in line and we become what our ancestors were. And, you know, and then our duty is to pass along to our, to our posterity, uh, the values that we hold. And so he kind of, I feel like he picks up on that because he says, in quoting Burke, says, society is complicated. Structure develops by evolution. And here's the kicker. Fashioning of memory creates self-conscious identity. In other words, identity is created not by dint of being a child of God, let's say. And you would think he would think in those terms as a Roman Catholic. But in fact, he, he turns completely away from that and says, basically, it's socially constructed and created by the evolution of society. But as you said, he's, he sets up this dichotomy between conservatism and fundamentalism as if uh, fundamentalism is the polar opposite of conservatism, which I found to be just a really odd framing. I'll just, I'll just put it up front and, and really arbitrary, to be honest with you. But he says on the conservative side, conservatives, this, he, he makes this dichotomy back and forth, conservatism is an acceptance of imperfection while fundamentalism is the necessity of perfection. Conservatism begins with the premise of human error while fundamentalism uh, looks to divine truth. Conservatism understands the permanence of human nature while fundamentalism looks forward to an apocalypse in which all human nature will be remade by the will of a terrifying and omnipotent God. Conservatism uses pragmatism and context to determine political choices or fundamentalism relies always on a book. I, he's setting this up as a dichotomy, but each of these I, I don't view as, as the opposite of the other. And I just feel like he smashed it together because he has a little bit of a bone to pick with religious fundamentalism. 
he obviously spends a lot of time in the book pushing back against the Catholic Church and their stance on on gay marriage and homosexuality in general. I don't want to call out his motives, but I feel like uh, a lot of this dichotomy between fundamentalism and conservatism is basically his way to frame his his beef with the, the Catholic Church and religion in general to sort of say, well, not only does that suck that you have that view, but it's not even conservative because conservative is this other thing that sort of a more of a disposition. Yeah, I think I think it, if his his personal beefs come through in this a lot, um, and yeah, it's just divide, dividing people up that way. All of those different things that fundamentalists do and conservatives do in his telling, it seems like a lot of people I who I would recognize as conservative do both those things. Right. Um, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people are searching for truth, searching for a truth that's larger than themselves, trying to, you know, achieve virtue to be, I mean, without, while accepting that we can never be perfect, I think we try to aim in that direction. And I, and, you know, he talks about conservatives, the, the good kind, as he would say, accepting error as part of the human condition, accepting, you know, frailty. I think, I think fundamentalists, whether they be political fundamentalists or religious fundamentalists, all accept that humans fall short of ideals and humans are flawed and we all are trying to live right. But, you know, we all mess up. I, I don't, I, th- I think he's got this view of fundamentalist. That's really like a caricature of, of fundamentalism. Yeah. Just these, uh, these Ned Flanders types who are, you know, I'm better than you. I'm holier yeah. than you. I don't do anything wrong. You know, you're a sinner. I'm not. And I, I don't know any serious Christian who doesn't, except that he himself is also a sinner. And I, I think that's true for all of the major Western religions is this idea that you're, you try to be as good as you can be, but we all know that we're, we're not capable of pure perfection, but you're still supposed to try. And I think that's something he doesn't either. He doesn't get, or he's ignoring it because it doesn't fit into his worldview. Um, just the attack on fundamentalists felt very personal from the get-go. Right, yes. And I I think it kind of clouds his logic because some of the points he made about conservatism are true, as as I see it. He talks about the rise of how socialism was discredited after the 80s with the fall of the Berlin Wall, and it sort of was a a victory for conservatism, and all the stuff about the the Reagan-Thatcher line of conservatism is, is all very mainstream views but i think it's and part of it is his his personal conflict with dogmatic catholicism that has just spun him off in this weird tangent Mm -hmm. well early in the book he mentions his admiration for thatcher and reagan and it really led me to believe that he would develop those ideas and say hey look this is what i liked of reagan conservatism and you know ultimately this is how we went off the rails or something like that Mm-hmm. but he doesn't really do that. He doesn't give us a reason for why he was a Thatcher fan or a Reagan fan, at least to my mind, I didn't see it. You know, he, it's not like he, he didn't spend any time talking about lower taxes or free trade or, you know, it was just sort of like, yeah, I was a, I was a Thatcherite growing up and then jumps right into this, like, but fundamentalism sucks. And that's <laughs> the yeah. opposite of 
And I just thought that was weird. And, but I, I do want to give him some credit. Some of it, he does have some interesting ideas, as you said, about, about conservatism. And for him, I think conservatism is not a set of beliefs or an ideology or really a, a line of thought. It's more a disposition, sort of an attitude. And he describes what I would consider, or I would call epistemic humility, sort of uh, epistemological humility. In other words, he's humble about, uh, in his view, a conservative is humble about assumptions and understanding, you know, kind of with a recognition that knowledge is always interpreted and filtered by the observer. Epistemic humility is this idea that we just can't know for sure. It's a, it's a modest, almost agnostic posture in the universe. And to me, he sounded a lot like a lot of uh, Christian existentialists, you know, like Paul mm. Tillich and, and Karl Barth and uh, folks like that. He says, the defining characteristic of the conservative is that he knows what he doesn't know. While not denying that truth exists, the conservative is content to say merely that his grasp on it is always provisional. He may be wrong. He begins with the assumption that the human mind is fallible, that it can delude itself, make mistakes, or see only so far ahead. We will never fully or completely transcend where we are. So, I mean, there's a really a historicist view here. We can, we will never fully com or completely transcend where we are. Uh, in his, I think in his conception of conservatism, it's sort of this humble uh, view of the universe. It's more of a hope with mixed with sort of a almost a, a Christian mysticism of there is a God, but we'll never be able to grasp what God is or what God does. And, and any, any hard uh, knowledge of God is with as outside of our grasp. So, you know, this is where he would view fundamentalism as, as a, a distasteful because the idea of, you know, well, a lot of Christian fundamentalists, you know, and Islamic fundamentalists, you know, they look to the book and say, what does it say in the book? Mm -hmm. Where he's more of that sort of medieval Catholic mysticism mixed with sort of this Christian existentialism where you, he has a, a humility, modest uh, posture towards the universe, just sort of throwing his, you know, well, we can't understand and we can, we can try our best and we can do good. And that doesn't mean God doesn't exist and we should almost act as if he does. But the best we can hope for is glimpsing the divine here and there. And so a conservative, in, in his telling, is a person with this attitude, with this disposition, as opposed to someone who has some set of core beliefs. And that, that I think, really outlines what's so frustrating about this book is the humility part of that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that that feeds into a lot of what conservatives generally believe about government. We talked about with Hayek where the idea that we can't impose values from above on it, on most things because we don't agree what those values are and never will. Mm -hmm. and that's a, that's a form of humility that I, I think is matched in Sullivan's ideas here. And, and it also contributes to the idea of federalism and, and localism. He says somewhere in here that, you know, that, one of the ideas of conservatism is that the closer you are to a problem, the better you understand it. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a form of humility too. It's, it's, it's asking our politicians in Washington to say, I'm not the best one to solve 
that problem in your town. You know, maybe your governor and maybe your mayor and city council, maybe, you know, something even smaller because they understand it. And that's, that's a kind of humility that makes a lot of sense. But then when we get to the idea of whether there is truth, he says that he's not denying that there is something out there called truth. Yet by saying we can never know it, um, any of it, that's, it's basically saying it doesn't exist, or at least it doesn't exist in any meaningful way for any human being. You know, maybe it's the sort of truth that when we die and, you know, if we, if, heaven exists and we get to go to it, we can learn the truth. And that's that. But that's not a really, that's not a meaningful thing for any sort of political theory or or philosophy or, or, or just how to live on earth to say that truth is unknowable. Um, Because if it's unknowable, then we're all just given opinions out here. We're not proving anything or demonstrating anything from the experience of history or tradition or logic. We're all just, uh, like atoms bumping around mm-hmm. the world and groping towards some sort of manageable system without any theory behind it. And I, I don't, that feels very not conservative to me. It feels more like that sort of, that sort of, that, that strain of leftism that says we're all just overgrown apes. Mm-hmm. None of this means anything. You know, our brains are diluting us. And that that's, I don't know. For for someone who claims to be a conservative and a theist, that is a very strange take. And it I, I don't think you really reconcile the two. Yeah, and to me it feels like really a, a rejection of the Enlightenment project that we've talked about in so many other books. Because where you had, you know, let's say Thomas Jefferson or some of the founders who were deists and had an attitude of, uh, yeah, there's probably a God, but he has no bearing really on our daily life. He's not interested. He doesn't this isn't a activist God. So let's turn, let's turn to what we can know. So let's turn to science and logic and, you know, enlightenment reasoning in order to, you know, move the ball forward as, as far as we can. For Sullivan, I feel like he has the sort of the same conclusion that, well, we can't really know, but instead of ma- making that next turn, he sort of also rejects kind of the broader shorthand we'd call enlightenment project of sort of like, well, even in science and in politics and in daily life, we can't really know either. All we can do is live from moment to moment and just sort of take the world as it comes and have no particular expectations, no particular objectives. And this really rejects kind of the teleological view of the world that we talked about last week with, with Strauss. Instead, we're just saying, as you you know, as you described, you know, atoms bumping around, and the world is mysterious. The universe is mysterious, and it is what it is. And to me, this is what I was getting at when I said it. Just it feels like sort of that crystal existentialism. It's sort of like there's very little that we can control, very little that we can grasp. We might as well come to grips with the fact that we're lost and floating in the universe, and. That, those are interesting thoughts, I guess, but I don't see how that you can pull that, call that conservatism. You know, to me, that's his own, you know, we were emailing back and forth. It's like almost, it's almost like he conjured up his own view of the universe and then just labeled it conservatism, where mm-hmm. it probably would serve him better to call it something else. 
but I could be the case, you know, all throughout the book, I was thinking, well, maybe this is sort of a 1980s British conservatism that I'm just not really familiar with. And maybe Kyle has a better insight to all that. Well, see, it doesn't, it, it, it does. He mentioned Disraeli in the book and the sort of like evolution of the British conservative party. But I think that's the wrong way to look at it because that's looking at the acts of politicians and trying to backform a theory. Whereas we, I mean, we know the politicians, when they get into a legislature, get together, there's always going to have to be some give and take. There's never pure theory being passed into law because not everyone's going to agree on that. And I think he's looking at the results of British conservatism over 200 years or so and, and, and saying this, well, this is the real conservatism is practical, pragmatic, not especially principled conservatism. And I think that's more like, that's what we got. That's not mm -hmm. what they wanted. Yeah, and especially yeah. when you go back to people like Reagan and Thatcher, like these were principled people. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Thatcher's principles were really in opposition to everything that a lot of, well, a lot of the things that were pervading Britain when Sullivan was growing up, you know, I mean, they, they had nationalized everything, you know, they had nationalized the rails, the coal mines, the health system, and uh, none of it was working right. And jobs were like, like in, like in America in the seventies, there was this stagflation situation. There was unemployment. There was a lot of bad stuff going on with democratic socialism. And it was more socialist in Britain than it was here. I mean, not like revolutionary socialism, but they, their labor party was openly socialist until the nineties and did nationalize big industries like the way an actual Marxist would behave. Mm -hmm. So when, when Thatcher comes in in opposition to that with real theories about the free market and democracy and liberty, these are not uh, muddling along Toryism. This is, that's hard stuff. That's real thinking about first principles and an ideology. And I mean, yeah, I don't know how he can call himself anti-ideological, but also a Thatcherite. Because yeah, those yeah, are opposites. Well, so he has he has another bone to pick with uh, natural law, yeah. and in our in our book last time with Leo Strauss, obviously it was a focus on natural right, which is not it's not the exact same thing as natural law, although you have some some similarities. But he's he's understanding natural law through kind of the Catholic rendering through his Catholic lens, and he clearly despises it. So he says, this is the Catholic natural law that he doesn't like. Human beings have a common fundamental nature by which they must be judged. So the judged part is not, again, that goes back to our, you know, Strauss episode, natural light, right is not about, you know, God's judgment because it's sort of agnostic to God. But second, our nature is given by the creator to dictate how we live our lives. You know, basically this is sort of a, general religious view, I would say, but science will support it because science cannot conflict with truth. You know, we all share a basic human nature. The good life is the same for all. Mm -hmm. Everything has a purpose, humans most of all. So he's attacking this as natural law, but to me, this is basically just Christian doctrine in general, right? Yeah. And, and the natural law scholars he engages with are all conservative Catholics, <laughs> which makes us feel more like a family feud than right. yeah. a real objection to natural law theory. I mean, he mentioned Strauss at the end of the book, but not really as much in opposition as he does. He's talking about, I think it was Robert George 
big natural right, natural law Catholic. And I mean, I think he starts off really kind of cynical about why these conservative Catholics have adopted natural law. And he says that they, they adopted it in order to win the battle of ideas, not because they particularly believe it. I think just, mm. he thinks that they, well, like, look, we can't go into the public sphere and say, God says this, God says that, because not everyone believes in our version of God. So we're going to do this natural rights thing. And it's the same thing. And I, I think that's a really cynical way of looking at, yeah. I think it's always bad to look at the other side and, and with complete cynicism because mm -hmm. sometimes the other side is wrong, but honestly, you know, and I, I think some of what Sullivan says is wrong, but honestly, I think he really believes this stuff and he really thinks it's the best way to live. Mm -hmm. that's, but I think that's just a, that's something you see in our politics all the time is that the other side must be either paid off or crooked or they don't yeah, really believe yeah, that yeah. they're you know, like, no, they believe it. And it's, we're just different. But his take, yeah, his take on natural law is really a take on Catholic natural law theory, which mm -hmm. is a real subset of the whole idea. And I, it felt a little dishonest because I don't think everyone who believes in natural law is coming at it from that explicitly Christian, conservative Christian perspective. Yeah. Yeah, we have a great example of that from our... Strauss reading, obviously, right. you know, natural right, and he doesn't talk about God at all. But uh, and I think his, again, we don't want to question motives, but I, I think maybe some of his real interests, Sullivan's real interests, kind of rise to the top when he's talking about natural law. He says, you know, they believe that God cannot make creatures that are internally incoherent. This, I think this is really directed at his homosexuality. He says, God made us, he made us for a reason. And I think he's really getting at sort of what we were talking about last week, the uh, is-ought distinction in social science, but really in, in philosophy, that you can't derive an ought from an is, a should from from a fact. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, quite a few religious believers, I don't think this is a natural law thing, but it's, uh, but it, but it's part of natural law but I think it's held more generally among religious, you know, thinkers is that, or believers. And that is, you know, certain human body parts go together in a certain way. And so that's what they ought to do. So the fact is what the body parts are and the should, the ought is what they should do. Hmm. And then, you know, like procreation or sexual act is used for procreation. And so therefore that's the only thing it should be used for. And he obviously takes real offense to all that. And, and, uh, you know, I'm not saying that he's justified or not justified, but I do, I did feel like it was a very, you know, personal bone to pick that he was making. And instead of, you know, writing for a general audience, he's sort of, he's a little self-indulgent and sort of cathartic for his own self to, you know, push back against some Catholic beliefs that, that really rub him the wrong way. Yeah, it was like getting a like a peek at a family feud being conducted in public. It's just it's a little embarrassing. Yeah. After all of that, he moves on to the idea that fundamentalists reject re reject the idea that the state should be neutral. And this is sort of a part of the libertarian conservative debate we've seen from other scholars. It's, should the state stay out of things and let people find their own virtue or does by staying out of it, the state effectively choose 
aside. And that's we. He says that fundamentalists believe that anytime the state passes a law, somebody's value is asserted, or even by failing to pass a law, somebody's values are asserted. I don't think that's necessarily a fundamentalist position because I, I mean I think we saw that in uh, George Will's Soulcraft as Statecraft mm-hmm. or Statecraft as Soulcraft, and I, I, I find this as more of a um, more of the kind of conservatives I think Sullivan would be comfortable with say this. So it was a little confusing to me. And then also this, um, that whole chapter four, he goes on a lot about, here's, here's something that's particularly unusual for a conservative. He likes Justice Kennedy's passage in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that Mm -hmm. at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. And to him, that that's sort of that conservative attitude that you were talking about, yeah, that, yeah. that way, that, that humility, that way of just going about saying, well, I don't have the right to tell you how to live. You don't have the right to tell me how to live. It's funny, this passage, because this has been, uh, Justice Scalia famously mocked this, I believe, as the <laughs> sweet mystery of life passage. <laughs> yeah. because, it, because it's all just mushy-headed whatever it doesn't have anything to do with the law which is you know for Scalia kind of the and most judges the point of judicial opinions the law so Sullivan likes this and sort of takes a spin from that on how we as conservatives should live and govern and it's um I don't know it's it's one thing to say we should leave each other alone we should let people discover their own path to virtue. But I mean, I think he takes it into just sort of an, I'm okay. You're okay. Everything's okay. You know, it's, it's one thing to say we should all discover our own virtue. And it's another to say that, yeah, what is virtue anyway? It doesn't even exist. Yeah. That, that's where I think he ends up. And that, that seems strange. Yeah. And when I saw this in your notes, it just really made me smile because it's funny and it really highlights the oddity. I think of Sullivan's conservatism because I, I felt like that passage from the Casey decision perfectly encapsulated the Sullivan conservatism throughout the book, you know, just sort of this mealy mouth sort of airy ethereal view of the, of the universe. And it just, I can't help but think, you know, that's probably diametrically opposite to what I've always understood conservatives to think. I mean, is there a conservative who thinks that's a good decision? at all <laughs> you know i mean yeah right he he also personally that, reviled <laughs> <laughs> right and he well he's also I, there was some there was quite a bit of discussion about his pro-choice beliefs too which i think is maybe part of what influenced him in this way because i don't think he he doesn't seem to think abortion is a big deal yeah which in the modern conservative movement is sort of like whoa hold on now <laughs> that's out there um so it's almost like you feel like he could make some arguments for you know, a pro-choice position without necessarily going full-blown mystery of life. You know what I mean? Right. Reagan and Thatcher would not have gone there, for example. No, and Kennedy's opinion there was really just a... It was one of those where you feel like none of the other justices would have gone for it except that some of them needed a majority, so they had to... Yeah, yeah. All right, right we'll go with what he's saying yeah. because it makes five votes. And, and yeah. to me, you know, that decision and then, you know, I was, I was expecting him to quote some Justice uh, Sandra Day O'Connor decisions because she, 
her jurisprudence is one of practical, you know, iterative, because he, he highlights what he, he views as conservatism. He calls it a politics of doubt where mm-hmm. you embrace, embrace uh, practical knowledge over theoretical knowledge. He says, rather than insisting that we can know a deeper meaning, a conservative will simply accept the limits of his own practical knowledge, which is just sort of a, it, it is a little Burkean, but it's a, an approach to the world. It's an iterative approach to the world, uh, a practical uh, moment to moment. I, I have some respect for that. He, he really developed some of these ideas, multiple pages of quotes from uh, Oakshot, who yes. you mentioned this, and I, I totally agree that, you know, we probably should have just read Oakshot and skipped the <laughs> Sullivan book. Yeah, I mean, I, hopefully we can get back to that later in the season because he sounds really interesting. Yeah, so he sounded a little bit more interesting. But I think that the Sullivan conservatism is one of practical knowledge. It's, it's an iterative process, moment to moment. He says, conservatism is an anti-ideology. This is something you mentioned already. A non-program, a way of looking at the world, which just jumped out to me as just bizarre. And, uh, you know, conservatism as a non-program, I don't think any conservative would agree with that. But then later when I was, re- you know, reading maybe in Wikipedia or whatever, about a little bit more about Oakshot, I think that's a, a direct line from Oakshot. So you're kind of like, oh, okay, well... We need to get to Oakshot at some point, maybe get a better sense for what he was meaning by that and sort of his broader yeah. attitude rather than sort of more of this self-indulgent hodgepodge of <laughs> of attacks. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, except the problem with an anti-ideology or, is that it can't ever innovate. It can't ever lead to a new solution. Yeah. Right. So his kind of conservatism is just, in a way, extremely reactionary. It's just, well, what did we do? back in the day. Okay. Do we have any new ideas? No, because we don't have an ideology. We don't yeah, have, yeah. we don't have any analysis. Well, we don't have an objective what, either. It's just kind right. of like, we're what, just kind of we floating doing? around. We, we don't have, Hey, we want to accomplish this because it will have X result. Yeah. We, we don't have any aims. So what does it, what does it mean? And it, some of the other writers we've read from the 20th century, like, um, like crystal, really it or, or buckley it, they invigorated conservatism because they said that you know we can have ideas from the right we can have we don't just have to react to what the left's doing and maybe tinker with it and take the good bits and you know which is, is kind of what sullivan's getting at and that's kind of what the british conservative party does now mm-hmm. there's no ideology there it's just sort of uh, muddling through well a little this a little that let's trim this back let's push this up you know and that's not that's not a, a party of ideas. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think even by when we were growing up is when the Republican party finally accepted that it should have some ideas instead of just reacting to Franklin Roosevelt for 50 years. Right, right, right. With the Gingrich revolution in the nineties, here was a conservatism that said, well, look, here's how we can make changes based on our ideas that will make things better for Americans, better for the world. Mm-hmm. Here's, we can make government work better. And if you don't have a theory, I don't know how you get to any of that. Um, mm-hmm. you're just tinkering at the edges of somebody else's ideology. Well, so that's a good point. So maybe he comes by this a little more honestly in that what you've described is sort of a Rockefeller, George Romney style Republicanism where it's big government sort of 
go along, get along kind of a, a moderate uh, approach to politics. And I think that's probably the upshot of Sullivan's conservatism is if, if you, everything is practical and iterative, then you just sort of muddle along and go along and get along and not make waves and okay, you want some of that. All right. I'll give you some of that. I'll, if I can get, you know, 55% of what I want, I'll give you 45% of what you want. And, and you know, there's, there is some virtue to that, particularly today. We could, we could use a lot more of that, frankly, but, mm-hmm. but it's definitely not a, it's not a conservatism of ideas. You know, it's not a Gingrich. It's not a Paul Ryan, you know, uh, conservatism of, Hey, we have an idea to make the country better to unlock economic growth, for example. Instead, he doesn't really have an objective so much as um, maintaining existence. Yeah, and that's I, I think that practical politics has to involve compromise. I don't think everybody should go to Washington saying, well, if I don't get 100% of what I want in this bill, I'm going to vote against it. You know, I'm going to shut down the government because I don't, you know, there's one section of this thing that I don't care for because mm-hmm. that's no way to, nothing ever gets done. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes something shouldn't get done, but something has to occasionally get done and we need to do it. And that means sometimes working with people you disagree with, but those people all start with, even if you're practical in, in, in government, you start typically with an idea and maybe you move a little bit towards the other person's idea but it's a battle of ideas and it's maybe it's an incremental approach to your own idea. Maybe it's getting a little better instead of doing it all at once, but it still starts with the idea. And and here he's just sort of, if, if you don't have your idea and the other side does, you're going to get rolled eventually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, what yeah. he's doing is just, he's just slowing down leftism. He's yeah, not right. actually engaging it in any kind of battle of ideas. Right. Right. It's yeah, just exactly. like, well, we'll we'll get we'll still get what you want, but it's gonna take fifty years, not five. Oh <laughs> yeah. that's not conservative. That's not anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then after all that, he spends much of chapter six defending his support for the Iraq war. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which I just found so out of left field bizarre. Like after all this, then now you're you're gonna take the opportunity to defend your support for the Iraq war and call it conservatism. So he says he talk, he discusses Hobbes's construct of the state of nature. You know, we discussed this a little bit in our Locke episode for, for Locke, the state of nature was people were happy and generally got along, but there were some bad apples. And so we needed to protect one another. So we banded together and formed government in Hobbes's con- construct, which comes pr- you know prior by 30 or 40 years or something like that comes prior to Locke. Locke's thinking Hobbes was basically like state of nature is just post-apocalyptic wild west where, you know, people are out to get one another constantly, you know, and so that everyone's in constant fear for their life. It's like uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road where, you know, everywhere you go, someone's trying to kill you to eat you or something. And so for Sullivan, he's talking about Hobbes, like Hobbes says government was formed so that people could get protection and they were like hey we'll take a despot we'll take a king whatever it takes we just need somebody to stop everyone else from trying to kill me or steal my stuff or you know we have to have some level of security and so sullivan picks up on this to sort of defend his support for the iraq war because he says now i just found this so odd and i want to hear what you have to say Kyle." he says this is a quote 
the first goal of conservatism is security, not virtue or education or liberty or the integration of the divine. It's security. Conservatives value order because he can see himself in place of the victim. His, the victim's security is my security. I just thought, what in the world? After all that, now the first goal yeah. of conservatism is security? Where does that come I don't from? buy it. That feels that feels like a post hoc rationalization. Absolutely. I mean, it security is important, but I, I would never call it a goal. I call it maybe like it's a first step because you're I mean, he's right that if, if we're all living in a state of nature and you know, killing and stealing from each other, you can't really get to anything else. Yeah. So it's a it's a goal, but it's not I think I would I think most people say the goal of conservatism is either to live virtuously or to create liberty so that each person can himself or herself decide how to live virtuously. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's you. That's, that's one of those and, or something in combination. Usually we're aiming at something besides just like no one can steal my stuff. <laughs> like that's, that's, that's part of it. And, and certainly property rights go, I mean, Burke was into them. Weaver, talked about them as the, the last meta metaphysical right that kind of security is important and security of the person well you know if somebody's trying to kill you all the time you can't really think about anything else but that there's no political <laughs> theory if you're constantly just avoiding murder <laughs> but there's that's not the goal that's just more like what we have to do to get to the goal yes yeah, so yeah I, I thought it was like it's a first step if we're talking about emerging from the state of nature that okay first stop doing all these crimes against each other now. Okay. Where do we go from here? And hmm. he doesn't really, uh, well, the thing that jumped out at me in that same chapter is he says, the freest society is one in which the quintessential ultimate activity is play. Security is guaranteed. <laughs> work is done. The wealth that freedom creates enables leisure and leisure begets play. Huh? Like, wait, what? <laughs> like all of this, all of this work of, hundreds of years is so you can play video games or whatever <laughs> like i mean I, I like video games but that's not that's not the goal of society that's like something we do you know in some downtime relax a little bit it's not i can't see leisure as being it and i think a lot of people do feel this way but that's just how long can that can a republic based on bourgeois hedonism actually endure without people protecting it you know i mean yeah that can't play can't be your goal i mean because <laughs> that's not that's not like i mean how do you how does anything work in society if that's the goal i mean you know people aren't police aren't patrolling our streets because it's fun you know mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. they're doing it because it's a job that has to get done and they got hired to do it and it's like it's a tough job but that security that he talks about is only achieved through people acting virtuously and doing the jobs that have to get done. You know, we have an army and a Navy protecting this country from foreign invasion, not because it's like for a laugh. It's, you know, <laughs> it's because it's, it's, it's important and it has to get done and it's a dangerous job and people get killed doing it, but it's, it's something that's necessary for the modern state. So th this thing just seemed like, like, what is that even? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's I, it, honestly, it just seemed like a child's idea. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I just add that it, the idea that if, if the first goal of conservatism is security, that just runs completely contrary to everything else he had just said. Like, we're talking yeah. about uh, a conservatism of 
um, a, a humble disposition and and viewing the world as unknowable and mysterious. But then the first, so the first goal of that should be, if he's going to stay consistent, it would be something along the lines of, I don't know, mutual respect or, you know, acknowledging the humanity of someone else and so forth. Not like, hey, let's stop each other from killing one. I, I, I don't know, it just, it just didn't seem to fit. And it, like, to your point was, to me, it just jumped out as a complete post hoc rationalization for his support for the Iraq war and really not a good one. So, yeah, and it kind of, that kind of feeds into one other thing in that chapter. He said this, the great and constant dream of, cons- of the conservative is to be left alone by his own government and by his fellow humans as much as possible. <laughs> now the government part I get, but do we, that feel like, do we, is that our goal to be left alone by our fellow humans? Like, I mean, I guess it depends on what you mean by left. Yeah, alone. again, this this is why it's autobiographical because you know yeah. he, he has he he's a blogger who's hangs out in his pajamas <laughs> by himself in his in his uh, townhouse or something like that, and he's like kind of describes his own life. Yeah, I I mean that, I from think that we extrapolate are, like a, a a view of the world. <laughs> it's yeah, that politics. felt very personal for him and strange, and it I mean. Most conservatives, I think, talk about intermediating institutions and you know, the value of these groups in society that do things that the government shouldn't do. I mean, he talks about going to church a lot. He doesn't talk about doing anything at church. He goes to mass and goes home, I guess. I mean, but it's yeah. not really, I guess he just wants to be left alone there. And that's okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, some yeah, people yeah. don't like to join. I mean, we don't all have to be joiners. I mean, I, I kind of sympathize with that at times, but yeah. the, the idea of the most most conservatives idea of society involves not just this radical isolationist um, individualism which is i mean that that one just jumped out at me and maybe i'm putting too much weight on that sentence and maybe he didn't mean it in quite that way but it seemed a little nuts yeah funny all right well should we get our last thoughts what are your last thoughts on andrew sullivan uh well i mean i i agree with what you said um this is a very personal take for him and it's I think it comes from the idea of like he thinks he's a conservative and maybe he is I don't know but and then he sees a lot of things in the conservative movement that are at odds with him and he says well no they're all wrong I, I, I'm still conservative so here's how that can work and then the conclusion which he says I haven't provided a new doctrine or a new set of policies I said, mm-hmm. well why are we reading this it's a weird it's a weird kind of political philosophy book that says at the end, I haven't come up with anything new. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, but I guess that in a way that ties into his, na- his notion of conservatism is that it's not an ideology. And I, um, I don't know if, if that can be right. I, th- but I do think it, it does. Uh, I'll, I'll agree with him so far is that it, it does get to the roots of conservatism, which as we've discussed before, doesn't really come from one person or one party. It's sort of the collection of tradition and and wisdom from the centuries. Mm -hmm. But I think added to that must be an ideology about why those traditions were good, whether we should keep them, how we should keep them, how we should make them flourish. And by leaving out that piece of it is really, I think just a sort of static mutable conservatism that, 
is going to inevitably be pushed aside by some ideology that's got more muscle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I appreciate that he ends the book by saying, I don't really have any new ideas. Cause I mean, I think you and I probably got to the end of it. It's like, mm, that sounds about right. But yeah, I mean, his, his thinking does travel outside the mainstream of conservatism. I think that's pretty clear. So what you and I would understand to be conservatism, these other books that we've read, the direction that they row, this rose in a very different direction. And I guess what irritated me a little bit is I feel like, okay, you have this different conception of what conservatism is. You don't really spend any time trying to persuade us to come in your direction. You know, you, you view yourself as conservative and you have these eclectic views. And instead of sort of saying, Hey, you should, you should have my same eclectic views because of this, that, and the other, Instead, it's just kind of a self-indulgent rant about, you know, religious belief and Bush's social conservatism and stuff like that. So I was a little disappointed. I feel like he probably could have tilled some new ground if he had wanted to. You know, you mentioned this offline to me, and I agree. Like, well, I, I had really had no idea what Oakshot was up to, but I knew he was listed as one of the conservatives. as one of the books that we have out there to read at some point. And so we'll be interested to read that at some point to maybe get a more refined vision of, of what, uh, what Sullivan picks up on here. So mm -hmm. anyway, next time we're going to read some Ayn Rand. I have actually never read any Ayn Rand, Kyle. So I am a little sheepish about that, but I'm interested in reading this instead of tackling one of her thousand page books. We're going to read this book called The Virtue of Selfishness, written, uh, published in 1964. It's kind of short, it's only about 175 pages. It gets right to the meat, I think, of probably what she has to say. And so we're looking forward to that. So hopefully you'll catch us next time, Ayn Rand. Thanks much. <laughs>